0: Good morning. I'm really glad to be here with you. Um, I haven't really spoken much in the past couple of days, so I really didn't know what I was going to sound like when I opened up my mouth. Uh, On Friday, no sound was coming out, so praise the Lord. There's something coming out of my mouth. But uh, Again, I'm so glad to be with you. My name is Rob Heron. I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at Appalachian State in Boone. And put that water there. This morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Might seem at least an interesting choice to jump into the book of Revelation, but this this text is, is a great encouragement. It's very timely. It's obviously ancient. This is God's word, and yet it is so timely for us. Here in the book of Revelation, there's so many things that we could say about the book, many things that it is, but it is really at its heart an unveiling of reality this is an unveiling of the way things really are and here in this particular part of the book the risen jesus is sending authoritative messages of challenge and encouragement to the churches Uh, here this is a, a letter this is a message coming to the church in the ancient city of philadelphia And here, as reality is unveiled, we find that things are not always what our eyes tell us that they are. And that reality, what's really true of who God is, who we are, and the way the world is, is so much better than we often know or even hope. So you can uh, read with me Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. In Boone, just like in just like here, there are weeks where it rains and it does not stop. And those are often followed by weeks where it continues to rain. And a couple of years ago, we had one such week followed by another such week. And I was getting really tired of it until finally one Saturday afternoon, the sun came out. And I was very glad because there were so many projects outside that I wanted to get to. One project was that I wanted to go and build a fire pit. I had bought all the materials From Lowe's, the stones to take down into the woods to put it together. And this was my golden opportunity. And I had two options. Either, because our property is really described by the street name we live on, it's Fern Cliff. We live on a cliff that's covered in ferns. So either I could load up all the stone into my car and drive it down there. Otherwise, I'd have to be carrying stones or wheeling them down the cliff Maybe 50 times just to get all of the stones down there, which would basically be a CrossFit exercise. And I don't do CrossFit. So I told my wife, I think I'm just going to put all the stones in the car and take that all the way down the path that leads down to the, to the woods where it's flat. And she said, don't do that. Do not do that. It has been raining for 300 hours and there's no way the car is going to make it down there without getting stuck. But in a moment of desperation and Foolishness! I said, no, it'll be fine. She said, don't do it. And I said, I'm going to do it. So there was mistake number one, not listening to my wise wife. I hope this doesn't destroy my credibility with you. And so I loaded up all of the stone into the car. And the second that the car even hit the beginning of the path down to the woods, it started slipping and sliding, nearly going over a massive cliff that would have sent the car tumbling And the car immediately began to create two new natural gutters all the way down as I slid and finally landed and stopped at the flat part of the woods below, about 100 yards below. And trying to get out, the car began to sink. The more I was spinning the wheels, the more you could – almost not see the wheels anymore because of the mud itself, but also because the car was actually sinking down like it was going to be submerged into thick boon mire. And I could look up, I could look up the hill and see all the way up to stadium drive exactly where I needed to go with the car. And yet I was entirely powerless to get there. I could see it and I was entirely powerless to get there. To give an end to the story, I had to call a tow company and they had to send not – the guy looked at what had happened, and it was kind of a we-need-a-bigger-boat sort of moment. And he, they only had to send one truck, but two trucks. So it was one truck pulling another truck, pulling my car out of the woods. And the guy gave – for some reason, even in spite of that, gave me a discount, I think out of mercy, just feeling bad for me. Felt like he needed to do something. But this, this experience of seeing where we need to go and, and often feeling powerless to get there – can feel often like the Christian life. It can feel like that. We know with some kind of clarity where we are called to go. We know corporately, as the church, we are called to baptize the nations. We're called to reach the lost. Corporately, we're called to grow together. Individually, we are called to grow in maturity, to become more like Jesus. We know that. We can see it. And yet so often we feel weak, incapable, powerless to get there. We look at our own lives and we see that we're not exactly where we want to be. We're not as far along as we had hoped. We look at the church and we don't see as many of our neighbors coming to the church, coming to faith. The same kind of problems in our town, and our county, the same kind of miseries, they persist. Even if we just look at our own personal lives, our families, we, we look at the goals that we've, we have and we had. and We're not quite there. And in, the, in the incapability, in our powerlessness, and our weakness, what do we do? Kind of playing in the midst of, of all of that kind of experience is the world symphony of power and invitation to power. Because throughout every age, the, the path to the good life, to get where you need to go, to be whole, to be full, has not been weakness. It's been power, self-made strength. Even just in our, within our own frame of reference, I mean, for me thinking especially being around students a lot, a word that gets used now a lot is empowerment, empowerment. We need to be empowered, which is really a message of activating self-confidence, just drawing the strength within. You've got it within you to get where you need to go, so just dig deeper. That seems to be the message of so many students, not just so many of us, are hearing. And There's some truth to these messages to the extent that they emphasize that people are valuable and that we're not robots, but they are selling ultimately a false narrative of how we get where we need to be going, of how we get to the good life, because they're ultimately selling us that it's through taking charge, it's through empowerment, it's through you, but that is not the gospel. And, and no doubt, you just have to admit that this message at least has the capability of getting into the church and getting into us. The church is called toward an ultimate victory, but if we feel powerless, how do we get there? Maybe it's through empowerment. It's through better mobilization, better branding. We just need to draw the strength within. We need to appeal more. We need to be more efficient. And some of those things are not entirely bad in themselves. And it gets sold to us that this is the way you get where you need to go. In, the end of, in our individual lives, we can begin to, to essentially see our lives as a self-improvement project, self-betterment project with the gospel of Jesus affirmed in the background. It's about just getting better, you on your own, getting better and better. And, and yes, God is involved. We begin to view the solution to powerlessness as the pursuit of power. And to people like us who so often feel incapable or feel powerless, Revelation 3 confronts that love of power and gives us this encouragement. That God loves the powerless. God loves the powerless. And so I want to explain, help us understand a little bit of of how we see that here in this text, that God loves the powerless by looking at two things. We're going to look at what God gives the powerless and what God asks of the powerless. What God gives the powerless and what God asks of the powerless. So first, let's look at what God gives to the powerless. So again, the book of Revelation, it's obviously massive in scope and in in symbolism. It's a vision of the past, present, and future, really unveiling the way things are. And focusing again here, Jesus is sending a message to the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia, which is an Asia Minor. It's an Asia Minor. There's a few things we know about Philadelphia. We know that it was located on a fault line, so it was often rocked by earthquakes. So it was a place familiar with some kind of material insecurity, not knowing what was going to happen. But even more important what we know for about this church that hinted at in this passage is that it was also familiar with a kind of insecurity because of its own seeming insignificance. This was not a megachurch. This is not a church with a massive footprint. They didn't have some very popular podcast. Jesus is straightforward with the church in verse 8 where he says, I know you have but little power. He knows that their power is small. It's little Perhaps this was a church that was enduring great weakness and illness. Perhaps this was a church that simply was was small and not financially viable. Uh, And it, it may be, and what's also headed here, is that what attention they did get was seeming to primarily come from opponents who wanted to see them wiped out. They were insecure, small, weak, seemingly insignificant, like an ant. That a boot could easily just squash and stomp out. But in light of, in spite of and in light of this weakness that this church endures and bears, Jesus gives weighty, even massive promises to them, to the Philadelphians. So what promises does he give them? Well, first he gives them assurance, assurance. You can look at verse 8 again. Jesus promises, behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Jesus can promise an open door because he has the key of David, he says in verse 7. And this is a recall of the prophecy from Isaiah 22, which speaks to the successor to David, the king's throne. Whoever has the keys of David has the keys to, to usher into God's kingdom and his presence. And whoever has those keys has that authority to bring in and no one else. And no one else has the authority to kick out. So Jesus is saying to them, I have Given you an open door into God's kingdom and presence, and no one else can kick you out. Nothing else can bring you in, but nothing else and no one else can kick you out. He gives them that kind of assurance. But second, he gives them vindication. You can look in verse nine. There are those to be claimed to be the people of God, who Jesus describes as a synagogue of Satan. These people who are may, may be particularly angry at Jewish converts to Christianity who are within the church. Because they, these people claim to be Jews and are, are not, Jesus will make these people come and bow down before their feet. I mean, th- there may be here some some hint of a promise that these these enemies who are persecuting them will actually come to the Philadelphians and join them in repentance. But whether it's it's now or at the end of all things, Jesus' promise is that they will. The, the Philadelphian Christians will be vindicated. They will be proven to be loved by God. And in, in some ways instrumental in God's work of bringing the lost to himself through that weak, the weakness that they bear. So he gives them assurance and vindication. Third, he gives them protection. You can look at verse 10. Jesus writes to them, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The hour of trial is likely a longer period of suffering or persecution, affliction. If this period of time is coming soon, it could be that the, the word earth here is referring to a local kind of affliction. But whether this is some kind of incoming, um, impending affliction or this or if this is referring to the entire period of the church age, the history of the church. It is characterized by suffering, Jesus' promise to them, is that he will protect them. He will protect them from the destruction of their hope. I mean, the, in the light of, of the entire book of Revelation, in the light of the entirety of the scriptures, the promise is not that Jesus will keep them from experiencing suffering, because surely they will experience it. But the promise is that That suffering, that affliction, even that persecution does not have the power to destroy their hope. He will protect them. He will preserve their hope until the end. So he gives them assurance, vindication, protection. And finally, he gives, in verse 12, honor to these powerless people. He gives them incredible honor. He will make each, verse 12, a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. They will be permanent fixtures in the temple, the place of God's Particular dwelling and presence, one commentator writes, "There are some of you who would be glad to be stones in this temple, but Christ says he will make you a pillar. Jesus adds, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Jesus' own new name, which is the name above all names, the name of the Lord that he has received." through the victory of his crucifixion and resurrection, he will bestow that name upon the Philadelphians. Later in in chapter 22, this gets extended to the entirety of God's people and says that this name will be tattooed on their foreheads, on your foreheads. This incredible honor is given to the weakest and most insignificant of Christians. These promises are for sure. They're not exclusively given to the Philadelphians. I mean, they're given to all of God's people. And there there is a sense where we could say that it is in spite of the Philadelphians' weakness that Jesus gives them these, because being powerless is not some virtue in itself. It doesn't earn them these. But there is another sense in which it is because of their powerlessness that Jesus gives them these promises. Because being powerless is the prerequisite to receiving them. These are promises for weak people. Four powerless people. It's a prerequisite. Henry Nowen, he was a Catholic priest and author, a very successful man. He was at one point told that his sister-in-law was far along in a pregnancy. Far along in a pregnancy, she was going to be giving birth to a child that they had, through testing, determined was likely to have severe disabilities. And they had d- decided to name her Lauren. Laura, sorry. And Nowen, finding out this news about Laura wrote this family, his family, a letter, and he wrote, Laura is going to be important for all of us in the family. We have never had a, and he puts in quotation marks, weak person among us. We are all hardworking, ambitious, and successful people who seldom have had to experience powerlessness. Now Laura enters and tells us a totally new dependency. Laura, who will always be a child, will teach us the way of Christ as no one else will be able to do. Now, and was acknowledging the danger of perceived power? He was an Ivy league kind of guy. He was a successful author. He was a conference speaker. He was unfamiliar with the experience of powerlessness and in some kind of physical or material way. That didn't mean he wasn't powerless. Laura, his, his niece was not going to be born with a greater ultimate or spiritual powerlessness than him. She was going to be born with a, simply a physical manifestation of the powerlessness he bare he bore and we all share. And Laura would be a gift he was writing, because she would be an invitation, just in her in her presence, this invitation to be closer to a manifestation of the promises of God, because God loves the powerless. From the perspective of the world, powerlessness equals God-forsakenness. If you are powerless, if you are weak, that just simply shows that you're not able to become who you're supposed to be. You're not able to get to the good life. And in, in the language of the kind of university setting where I am, you're not able to actualize. You know, you're not able to realize your destiny. Less weak, less dependent, less needy. That's the way to the good life. But in God's economy. It is to the powerless that God gives his promises and only the powerless are able to receive them and be filled by them individually and corporately. The world looks at a church that is perhaps feels powerless, insignificant, small or without some massive reach and it says you show yourself to be forsaken. The world looks at a church that is persecuted and it says, this is only a demonstration that your God isn't listening to you. Perhaps he can't hear you because he's not there. But from the perspective of the cross, powerlessness is where God's love is poured out. Because in the weakness of the cross, God poured his love and his grace and his might into the destitute, into the needy, into the sinner, the spiritually powerless. It's in our powerlessness that we get every heavenly gift and are filled. Cornelius Pronk, um, writing about this, he writes, a self-reliant church will never receive such a promise. Certainly there may be a lot of activity in that kind of church. There may be many big and impressive campaigns, and they may be organized and thousands of dollars spent on advertising and so on. But the Lord does not bless man-made methods and techniques. Only when his people depend on him, realizing their helplessness and weakness, then the Lord will give his blessing. But here's the good news. What does God give to the powerless? He gives his blessing and he gives his love. Because God loves the powerless. That's the first thing. What does God give to the powerless? He gives his blessing and his love and the fullness of his promises. But secondly, what does God ask of the powerless? What does God ask of the powerless? In verse 8, you see, Jesus, he commends the Philadelphians. He encourages them because in the midst of their powerlessness, they have kept his word. Just as he guards and protects them, they have guarded his word, particularly the word of the gospel, the proclamation of what Jesus has done and who he is as Messiah. They They have not denied their union or belonging to him. They have continued in faith to believe upon him. There in verse 13, he asked them and all Christians to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To hear it, to hear these promises. And in hearing, he asked them in verse 11, hold fast to what you have. What you have, these promises I've given to you. Just the reality of belonging to me. Cling to those promises and cling to me. Grasp me, hold on to me. Keep the word What does this mean for powerless people? When I I look at that verb, to keep or to hold fast, it sounds like something that a strong person can do. It makes me think of Appalachian State football practices where they practice ball security drills. You know, someone holds the ball and they have really strong people come up and slap it, trying to strip it away from them because fumbles are really bad for a football team. And that requires strength. It requires a lot of, of technique and might, personal might. What kind of holding fast is Jesus calling for, asking for? In 1990, a British Airways flight went horribly wrong. This is an incredible story, and as far as my study goes, this is a true story. An improperly installed window, right, attached to the flight deck, Flew off in the middle of the flight so that decompressed air rushed into the cockpit, into the flight deck, so that the pilot was beginning to be sucked out of the flight deck into the open air to his death. But right at that moment, a flight attendant was walking into the flight deck and clung to the pilot. And this, this, this flight attendant Clung to the pilot's legs as as most of his body was laying prostrate against the front of the plane, while the co-pilot found a way to land the flight safely. As the pilot was there out in the the middle, nearly flying away, getting frostbitten, he survived. Dude, I need to give that ending. He did survive. That's why this is so amazing. What kind of holding fast does Jesus ask of his people? It's the kind demonstrated by the pilot. That's the kind of holding fast that he calls his people toward. He calls us to hold on because he holds us. He calls us to keep his word because he keeps us. He calls us to conquer because he has conquered. He calls us to cling to him because he has sent his spirit in us to to empower us in faith to cling to him. And to move forward each day to cling to him and to continue to press on, not denying him, but proclaiming him and proclaiming our union with him. He is powerful and faithful to preserve us. And so he says, persevere. Practically, what does this mean? I do think that practically this means we are to reject the world's narrative of power in the way that we understand ourselves and what we're what we're meant for and what our lives are all about. Your your life, my life, is not a story of empowerment, of just getting more and more influence, more strength, more might, more influence, more control. No, it's more and more a, a story of growing dependence, descending into humility so that we might know more and more the might and love of our Father. That is our story. And, of course, there is value in improving, <laughs> there is value in improving your craft or your skill or growing in wisdom as a parent, as a co worker, as a friend, whatever it is, of course. But, but the question here is what are your days? What is your life aiming at? More self sufficiency? More might? More control over your circumstance? No, Jesus says, "Aim your life, aim your entire the entirety of your days at me in the weakness of faith, independence. The question again is, in the end, what are you holding on to? Are you holding on to your competence, your name, your control Jesus says, there is in the end, there is no power in those things, and instead, again and again, ask the Lord Jesus to make all of your life and all of yourself and everything." Everything the world holds out to you to make it nothing so that you might in the weakness of faith cling to his might and the strength of his promise toward you you might know him and to boast in your weakness to boast in your incapacity in your need and for the church we have to reject the empowerment story in the way we judge success and failure if the church often feels incapable of solving its essential problems, which are the in sin problems, it's because it is. If the church feels incapable of solving the problems of the world ultimately, which are sin problems, that's because it is. But God has not called you to empowerment. He's not called you to be the Christ. He's called you to cling to the Christ. He has called you to faith, to Move forward day by day to persevere, and to hold on because he's holding you, to keep on because he keeps you. And as we persevere, as we cling to the power of his promise, he assures us that no one and nothing can kick us out. He promises us that in due time he will vindicate us so that in the end we will be justified, declared openly before all of creation, proven to be his people. And that in the weakness of faith, we even be vindicated by, in God's mystery, being a part of what he is doing instrumentally to bring the loss to himself. Jesus gives us honor. He gives us the greatest honor. There is no greater honor than belonging to the one who holds you. And he promises to protect us because no one and nothing and no amount of affliction and suffering can destroy the hope that you have in Christ in that place of need, in that place of suffering, even in that place of persecution, the Lord is near to you in a particular way. So what do we as a church, what do we boast in? Do we boast in our might? Do we boast in our influence? No, boast in the gospel, the power of God for salvation. There's nothing better that anyone could say of this church than that is a people that boasts In the Lord Jesus, they know their need of him and they boast in it. That's the thing that comes to mind. There's something powerful about that. Because what does power look like? Does it look like what the world is selling to you? Does it look like self-activating? Does it look like empowerment? No, it looks like the cross, the cross of Christ, because at the cross, Jesus conquered The enemies of sin and death gathered a people for himself and he proved himself sufficient in all things. And through the victory of weakness, through the victory of the cross, Jesus rose from the dead to be declared the son of God in power. My senior year of high school, I played football and I tore my ACL ligament in my left knee before the season even began. And so before anything ever began, I was rendered incapable, powerless, weak, unable to contribute to what the team was doing. Now, given I was not a great athlete, I don't know how much I would have touched the field anyways. I do love telling this because it makes it sound like I was cut down in my prime. You know, I I could have been something. No, but I tore my ACL. And so I spent every single game with, you know, even if I had my pads on, I was just warming the bench for other people. But. At the end of the season, in one of our last games in the playoffs, the team was up by probably 40 points. It was a big blowout. And my friends, possibly because they love me, but maybe also because they wanted to embarrass me, were egging the coach on to put me in at the end of the game with my knee brace on, to put me out there when the the offense goes into victory formation. The quarterback simply kneels the ball to end the game, and, and the my friends were telling the coach, "You got to put Rob in. You got to put him in." And for whatever reason, he was, he was kind of—I don't know—I don't think so. He had, he had his reasons. But then my friends egged on the crowd, the crowd to start chanting my name to pressure the coach to put me in. Finally, he did, and so I hobbled out there in my knee brace at the end of the game with you know five seconds on the clock, and I just stand—I just stand awkwardly behind the quarterback as he kneels the ball. But then the entire team rushes out to me. Only time this ever happened to me. They rush out to me and encircle me. And one of my friends who's a big dude, he lifts me up in in sort of a Rudy style victory celebration when I had done nothing. I had done absolutely nothing. But he wrapped me up and even lifted me up in the victory. I mean, this is the victory of the Christian and its heart. That in our weakness, in our need, and especially in our spiritual powerlessness and need of a savior, Jesus wraps us up and even lifts us up in his victory to share in the power of his resurrection. Why? Because God loves the powerless. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel that is for weak people like me. It's for sinners of whom I am the foremost. I pray that today we would, um, we would not listen to false stories about how we get where we are going, where we need to go. Instead, we would cling to Jesus, trusting him to work in us, that which is pleasing to yourself. Um, and that He's leading us toward the ultimate victory where we will share in the fullness of his promises realized forever. In your name, amen.